Amen and amen. Friends, you may be seated. Well, it's, it's good to be back. I was uh, gone last weekend. I was teaching uh, some master's students in, in Portland, Oregon, and Todd uh, jumped right in and, and delivered a great, great sermon. We're in this uh, series called For All the Saints, where we're looking at some of the saints of the church, kind of people who throughout history had some sort of impact. It impacts us today, some sort of influence on faith throughout the centuries of, of Christianity. And so we've looked at quite a plethora of saints so far, even though in our tradition as, as Methodists, we don't really have a category for saints other than we are all saints. Uh, but there are people that seem to have kind of, maybe they've had a vision or they've had, uh, you know, we looked at some martyrs a couple of weeks ago. Uh, they, they may have some teaching that has been foundational to the church. And then today we're going to look at, at somebody who was uh, charitable and benevolent. But their, their stories kind of continue to reverberate long after their death. And so we've been highlighting these stories and applying um, some of their characteristics uh, to, our, to our own lives. Uh, and today, full warning, I, I warned some of you in, uh, if you read the e-news, I warned you, uh, and those of you who are online, we are talking today about St. Nicholas, uh, and who is, you know, kind of the precursor to our modern-day Santa Claus. And I already ruined one surprise for college students this week. I don't want to ruin a child's Christmas. So you've been warned. If that is a part of your uh, Christmas uh, story and practice, we are talking about the real-life figure, uh, St. Nicholas. And St. Nicholas could not be any more different uh, than uh, Todd preached on St. Joan of Arc. They could not be any more different. Where Joan of Arc was, she had these visions of, of power and, and kind of uh, France claiming their nationalistic glory, and, and Todd appropriately held that in balance for us and, and called us to the way of peace compared to the way of the sword. So not everything about these saints are to be emulated. Uh, they, they, some of these saints of, of church history have some, some interesting paths uh, to them. Today, though, as we look at St. Nicholas, where Joan of Arc was in many ways about accumulating power and prestige, St. Nicholas was far more about giving that away uh, and serving the needs, especially of the poor. And so here's some uh, iconography and images of St. Nicholas. And, and you may not realize that, that, our, that our kind of story of, of Santa Claus is based on the stories of St. Nicholas, who was born around 280 A.D., uh, in Mira, which is in modern-day Turkey, if you've ever been to Turkey or seen maps of Turkey, the coast of Turkey is a, is a farming community called Demre. Uh, it used to be called Mira, and this is where he was born and spent the vast majority of his life. He ended up becoming the bishop of this region. And interestingly, I, I, I posted in, uh, on my social media, and I uh, wrote about it in the e-news just this week, archaeologists uh, revealed a new discovery that just this week they, they believe that they have discovered the original tomb site and sarcophagus of St. Nicholas. 
Uh, and so it's kind of, you know, all of this kind of converging at the same time. So I'm a nerd, so I'm really excited. The rest of you, you can just zone out for a few seconds. But uh, in, in, in uh, 1080, uh, th- well, there was a church that was built after St. Nicholas passed away. A church was built over his tomb site, which was very common at that time where there was somebody who was prominent, a bishop, whatever, uh, that when uh, they would die, they would build a church on top of them. And so that's what they did. They built this church on top of the tomb of St. Nicholas. And around 1080, some Italian bandits, for some reason, uh, broke into this church Uh, and found his uh, original bones, and they confiscated the bones. And many believe they sold them on the black market, uh, because at that time, saints' bones, people believed, were kind of had some magical components to it. And so they sold his bones on the black market. And ever since that moment, uh, nobody knew exactly where his sarcophagus was, exactly where this this church was, but archaeologists found this this existing church, because in church history, you have a church, and then you build a church on top of it, and you build another church on top of it, and you build, you may have like four or five generations of churches just built on top of each other, and they've dug down to the very bottom, breaking through uh, the floor, and they, they believe they found uh, St. Nicholas's original resting place. Um, so, so little is known about St. Nicholas's early life, and much about his life is is kind of lore, kind of fantasy, which is, which is why it's easy to see a connection between the, the literal St. Nicholas to the, the mythical figure of Santa Claus around Christmas, because there's not a whole lot that is actually known about his life. What we do know is he was appointed a bishop of the church. And in the early church, bishops were really, really important figures. They were people who were doing teaching and preaching. They were often establishing churches. They had uh, authority over Christians. Uh, but, but more than just kind of this like, you know, strong figure, kind of a, a, a wealth of, of biblical knowledge, bishops were also the people you went to if you needed something. They had access to a lot of resources. And so early in uh, St. Nicholas's episcopacy, his bishophood, he was arrested and tortured and beaten. At this time, when when St. Nicholas was a bishop, the emperor at the time, the emperor of Rome, was Diocletian. And Diocletian was a ruthless bishop because Christianity was illegal at this time. And he was ruthless, and, he, and he, there was vast and widespread persecution of Christians. And we, we heard about a couple of them when we looked at Perpetua and Felicity. But at this time, too, what, what Rome would do is they were so desperate to stop the movement of Christianity. It was spreading like wildfire. And so what they would do is they would try to find prominent figures And they thought if we can, much like Jesus, if you can kill the leader, if you can, you know, stop the leader, then the the followers will will kind of succumb to fear and will just kind of drift away into the background. And so Diocletian, he round up most of the bishops at the time. And he thought, if I, can, if I throw them in jail, if I make a public mockery of them, if I torture them and abuse them, and if they renounce the faith, then the followers will drift away as well. And so uh, Bishop Nicholas, St. Nicholas, 
was tortured and beaten for many, many years and refused, as did the other bishops, to renounce the faith. Well, there was a a change in leadership. Eventually, around uh, the 300s, a new emperor comes onto the scene, Emperor Constantine. And much of our Christian faith and even some of the the downside, as Pastor Todd talked about, this kind of uh, nationalism and even in our own country, Christian nationalism, we can attribute that thread, we can follow that thread of, of marrying power and politics with the church all the way back to Emperor Constantine. Because what Constantine did is he legalized Christianity he realized he was kind of smart in some ways, is he saw there's this, this Christian movement is not stopping. And so to garnish his own political power, he decides to legalize Christianity and get the Christians on his side. And so he, he legalizes this, now you're allowed to be a Christian, so persecution of Christians at this time began uh, to dwindle. There was always localized persecution, but this kind of government-sponsored persecution under Emperor Constantine began to dwindle, and unfortunately that's when we see, uh, you know, wars breaking out, we see Christians engaging in military battles under the banner of Emperor Constantine as the empire begins to even broaden beyond what it was. But Emperor Constantine, interestingly, called together a council of the bishops called the Council of Nicaea. If you've ever been, uh, you know, ever read, you can look in our red hymnal, the, the Nicene Creed, uh, which is one of the earliest church kind of foundational theological principles. Uh, it comes from Emperor Constantine, who called this council together, and guess who was invited to be a part of the council? St. Nicholas or Bishop Nicholas. So part of our the foundational, you know, principles of Christianity, God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, Nicholas was a part of that work. And so much so that there was a man, uh, 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 not a bishop, but, a, but a, a priest by the name of Arian of Alexandria. And Arian of Alexandria believed that Jesus was just 100% human, did not believe in the divinity of Jesus. And so he's invited to kind of give his perspective at the Council of Nicaea, because that's what they're trying to figure out is, who is Jesus? Is he just a human being? Is he fully divine, only kind of this godlike figure, or is he both human and divine? And so Arian gets up, and he he begins to give his presentation, and St. Nicholas is so irate. He sees what Arian is saying, or Arius is saying, as blasphemy to what we read in Scripture. And so he gets so upset. So this, like, red-cheeked Santa Claus isn't really quite accurate. He gets so upset, he gets up amongst 300-plus bishops, walks across the room in front of Emperor Constantine, and punches Arian in the face, and, and is arrested <laughs> Uh, for being violent. He was so upset, he felt like he was defending the gospel. They got physically violent and attacks Arius and is eventually arrested. And then Emperor Constantine looks at the bishops and says, he's your problem, you figure it out. And eventually the story goes on that he's, he's reappointed, he asks for forgiveness, and he's reappointed uh, to being a, a bishop. But this, this foundational Nicene Creed uh, St. Nicholas had an impact 
You're sitting here, uh, and, and as Christians, this understanding of, of Jesus as being fully human and fully divine is impacted by uh, the man that Christmas is attributed to. But perhaps what is most famous about St. Nicholas is his benevolent nature. There's a story about his life that there was a, a wealthy uh, man who fell on some hard times. His, his wife had passed away, he had lost his business, and he had three daughters. And at that time, your dowry as a woman was everything. It was what would determine the, the trajectory of your life was based upon what kind of dowry your father could give to another person. And so because this, this uh, ruler, this wealthy man, had fallen on hard times, he had no money to give. And so he was, he was forced into this decision to say, How, I, I can't, and this, again, we just have to think of the culture at the time, I can't marry off my daughters. I have no money. So he was about to send them off into prostitution. That was really the only uh, route for them. And St. Nicholas heard of this. I don't know if he knew the father or he got word from somebody else. And so the story goes that um, over a course of a couple of nights, St. Nicholas snuck out in the dead of night and threw a, a bag of gold, some say a bag of gold, some say a gold orb, into the window of this man's house. And that gold bag landed in the stockings that were hung over the fire. And he did this over the course of a couple of nights for each of the daughters through a bag of gold into their stocking, which could be used then as a dowry for them. Uh, and so that tradition of hanging stockings and putting, you know, goodies in the stockings is attributed to this benevolent St. Nicholas who was so moved by this man's story, did not want to see these young women thrown into prostitution, and so he gave out of his own purse, his own gold, uh, to take care of these three young women. There's another story which uh, says that St. Nicholas uh, heard word of three young boys who had been killed and had been um, stuffed into pickling jars. Uh, I don't know why, but he hears this story and he's so moved by hearing about these three young boys that he begins to pray and intercede uh, for these three young boys and they were resurrected and came out of the pickling jar. I don't know if that's true, it's just kind of fun to tell. There's a story of St. Nicholas in which there was a famine in Mira. And, there, and Mira is a coastal town, and so uh, ships would often dock there, load up, and then head into Alexandria or other places in the Roman Empire. And he sees that people are struggling uh, to put food on their table. And so he goes up to a, a captain of a fleet of ships. He had many, many ships. And he, and he begs this captain uh, to give some of the grain that were in the ships. And the captain said, I can't. If, if I show up to Alexandria and I don't come with the exact weight that I have in my ships now, I, I will be in trouble. I'll be arrested. I'll be fired or I'll have to pay. And, and he begins to plead and beg this captain, please, will you feed the people of this city. And so the captain agrees and he gives um, about a hundred some pounds of, of each of, out of each of the cargo ships. And, and so St. Nicholas gets to distribute this grain to the people. 
And, and it's said that when uh, the captain heads off, he's, he's thinking he's going to get to Alexandria and there's, you know, he's, he's going to get fired or he's going to have to pay. But when he arrives at Alexandria, like the story of the uh, fish and loaves of Jesus on the mountainside, miraculously their ships had the exact same weight of grain on the ships. There's this long history of connecting St. Nicholas to moments of charity, of generosity, and of benevolence. This is the story that began to be told over and over and over again through the centuries of this generous bishop who would give sometimes out of his own pocket. He was constantly connecting resources and people to take care of the poor in Turkey. So around 1773, a a newspaper article in New York talked about these Dutch immigrants in the United States who would retell the story of St. Nicholas, and they would get together, and they would exchange gifts, and they abbreviated his name to Sinterklaas, which is the Dutch version of St. Nicholas. And so this story of St. Nicholas eventually merged into this mythical figure of Santa Claus, this generous, benevolent figure who comes on Christmas and we stuffs toys and goodies and stockings and underneath trees, but it goes back to this benevolent, charitable, kind and compassionate figure of St. Nicholas of Mira, Turkey. So with that mind, this sense of generosity, I want to invite you to turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 9, where Paul speaks of this this call for Christians to live generously, uh, to live benevolently and compassionately in the world. So as you're turning to 2 Corinthians chapter 9 on 942 in your pew Bible, this is a uh, really a two-chapter conversation that Paul is having with the, the church of Corinth. And I want, I want to draw your attention to something uh, that Paul says in the, in the first few verses of chapter 9, in which he says, Now it is not necessary for me to write to you about, about the ministry of the saints. And so Paul understood sainthood is not just these, like, these core figures like St. Nicholas or Perpetua Felicity and, and, and uh, you know, um, Joan of Arc, that we are all the saints. If we are about the work of ministry, we are included in this category of the saints. And Paul's reminding the church of Corinth that they made a commitment. And their commitment was to give a gift, a financial gift, for the church in Jerusalem, that the church in Jerusalem was kind of the epicenter of the Christian movement at this time, and the church of Corinth agreed, we, we will give a portion of our own kind of tithe, the collecting of, of the giving of the saints in Corinth, to go and support the work of what God is doing in the city of Jerusalem. And so Paul is writing this letter, uh, or this portion of the letter, to remind them of this gift. But it's interesting how Paul speaks about generosity. Look at uh, verse 6 of chapter 9. The point is this, the one who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly, and the one who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each of you must give as you have made up made up your mind, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. 
And God is able to provide you with every blessing in abundance so that always having enough of everything, you may share abundantly in every good work. As it is written, he scatters abroad, he gives to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. He will supply seed to the sower and bread for food, will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase your harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way for your great generosity, which will produce thanksgiving to God through us. For the rendering of this ministry not only supplies the needs of the saints, but also overflows with many thanksgivings to God. Through the testing of this ministry, you glorify God by your obedience to the confession of the gospel of Christ and by the generosity of your sharing with them and with all others. While they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God that he has given you, thanks be to God for his indescribable gift. Friends, this is the word of God for us, the people of God. Thanks be to God. Keep your scripture open because we're going to look at a verse in a moment in chapter 8. And so what Paul is doing is he's, he's first reminding them of this gift. This, the church of Corinth had agreed we are going to give uh, to the church of Jerusalem to support the saints in Jerusalem and to support the ministry that they are a part of. And so what Paul does then is he, he, he has this conversation by giving thanks for their generosity. And, and, and this, hear me, what I'm about to say is controversial. And it's controversial depending upon what your experience has been with Christianity. Okay? Hear me out for a second. In Scripture, there is a principle that we can't fully get away from. And the principle is this. Giving, or namely generosity, in whatever forms that is connected, whatever form that comes from, is connected to some sort of reward or benefit. Now hear me out. I am not trying to be like one of those prosperity gospel preachers. You will not see an 800 number, you know, come on the screen. If you're online, you will not see an 800 number scanning across the screen. But there does seem to be, and Paul is alluding to this, that there seems to be a correlation between giving or living generously with what he says in verse 8, with every blessing in abundance. Now hear me, I grew up in a tradition where this was abused that I was taught to believe that if I gave anything, my time, my resources, that somehow I would like gain some extra wealth. Uh, in, in college, again, I'm a nerd, so I totally own it. In college, uh, Sarah and I would, would go to this truck stop in, in, uh, uh, in, in, you know, at all hours of the night. We were with a group of friends, and we decided, we, we had heard there was a commercial of a, a prosperity gospel preacher and you'd say send a dollar in and we'll send you some holy water and you'll put this holy water under your pillow and you'll get a new car and so we're like let's try it out so we send in a dollar and then you know we 
what happened was then we'd get together and we'd talk about the letter we would get from this prosperity preacher. And it was always like, if you just give one more dollar, then your car will come. And then you have to sprinkle the water on top of your pillow. And then it will, or sprinkle the water on this rag, shove the, it was always these extra steps that were tied to, if you just give a little bit more, then your blessing will come. That is not what Paul is saying. I don't think that's biblical. But what Paul is trying to allude to, and something I don't think we can fully escape, even with the, the, sometimes the theological baggage we might carry or the way we've heard giving to, you know, being talked about, is there is a correlation that when we give, there is something that is given in return. The question becomes, what is this reward or blessing that we receive by living generously. That's the primary thing Paul is trying to answer, is what is this reward that we receive? And before we answer that question, we have to look at a couple of factors of Paul's argument. First, it's never about the amount that is given. It's the very act of blessing. Look at what he says in chapter 8, verse 12. So go back one chapter Look at what he says in verse 12. For if the eagerness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, not according to what one does not have. Paul's saying that generosity has actually nothing to do with the physicality of giving. It's never the dollar amount. It's never the amount of time we spend doing something. That is not what Paul's talking about at all. The, that doesn't matter. That is not a part of this conversation. Paul says what matters is the eagerness, the, 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 the kind of inner life of the giver. Do we give, as he later says, out of compulsion? Because somebody's telling us we have to. Or we think it's connected to some sort of other reward, like a new car will uh, magically appear in our driveway. Or is it something more deep and more spiritual inside of us? It's about the eagerness of the person, the act of giving, the act of living benevolent, the act of living generously with our time and our talents and our resources, not the actual amount of any of those things. And secondly, then, Paul highlights two fundamental and uniquely Christian principles. One is this, everything we have, everything, the very breath in our lungs as we just sang, the work of our hands, the talents that God has given us, is all a gift from God. And it should be used for God and God's purposes on earth. But you and I, the other principle of this is we have a tendency to hold on, to hoard, to protect, or to refuse to use the very gifts which have been given to us by God, which is to say, to sum that up is to say, everything that we have our time, our talents, our resources, the breath in our lungs, our, the physicality of our bodies, our mental capacities, is to be stewarded, cared for, and always seen as a gift. 
And so he uses this analogy of sowing. Now, just think for a moment. If, 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 if I'm a farmer, I grew up in a farming community. Yesterday, my in-laws were at the house. My parents were at the house to celebrate Sarah's birthday, which, by the way, is tomorrow. Happy birthday, Sarah. Uh, I think I'll be sleeping on the couch. And both our parents grew up in rural areas, and their, their farming talk happens between my father and my father-in-law, and they're talking about planting seeds and all those things. Just imagine if a farmer has a basket full of seeds, and they think, I'm just going to plant five and hope that I'll have this abundant harvest. We would say, that's a ridiculous farmer, and they should get out of the business of farming. When a farmer scatters the seeds abundantly, we wouldn't say that they are being, they're being you know, flippant with their gifts. We're saying they're being a good farmer. Because they recognize the more you cast, the more seed you scatter, the more harvest w- which will grow. And then all farmers know that the more harvest you have, the more seeds you have actually for next year. So if I plant five seeds and I only get five stalks of corn, I'm only going to probably have five plants the next year. But if I plant 50 stalks of corn, that will be multiplied. I'll have more seeds for next year. And what the reward is, the harvest that comes, is the next year I can plant even more. And then I plant 100 stalks of corn. And then I gather even more seed from that. And so the the next year, I'm going to have 150 stalks of corn that I can plant. This is what Paul is talking about. This is this kind of reward that Paul's speaking about. Paul is not trying to be this kind of prosperity gospel preacher to say, if you plant these seeds, if you give generously, God's going to reward you with a bigger house, a bigger home, a, a bigger, you know, car, whatever it might be. What Paul's saying is, when you live and give generously, the blessing is that you can be even more generous the next year. The blessing is never to hoard the things that God has given us, but to scatter our seed broadly so that a rich harvest will come so we can be more generous the next go-around. This is what Paul is speaking about. And it's an invitation for these Christians and for us to to benefit from this, this blessing of God, this abundant blessing that when I sow and I give, whatever that looks like, our time, our talents, our reason, whatever it looks like, the reward is that I, I, I benefit from that in some way. I'm changed, I'm transformed, and so I can continue to give and continue to give and continue to give. This is the life of a disciple is to give and live generously, not to accumulate and hoard and hold on to. That's rooted in fear and scarcity. Will I have enough? We're a people of hope. We believe that God uses whatever we bring, the work of our hands, and we use it for God's own glory and gain. Now, I, I, I don't understand why God does this. I don't understand why God looks at us and says, you're to be about the work of the kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. It would be very easy if God just snapped God's fingers and fixed everything in the world. But for some reason, God looks at us and says, I've given you so much. I've given you talents and abilities and resources. So it's a question of an evaluation as we evaluate the things that God has given us. Some of you are phenomenal cooks. And the only people that benefit from that is yourself.
Some of you have a deep gift of empathy. Just have an ability to connect with another human being. What if God was calling you to expand that gift? Some of you have a natural gift of leadership. You see systems and you understand how they work and you you understand solutions and you can look at a problem and say, here's the things we need to put in place to resolve some issues. And we hoard that to ourselves. What if God gave you that gift for such a time as this? Some of you have the gift of mechanical engineering. You know how a car works. And so you work on your own car. But what if God was calling you to work on your neighbor's car? Or the widow down the street who's on a fixed income. And when her car breaks down, it really hurts. What if because of the gift that God has given you, your intellect, your insight, your understanding of how mechanical, you can tell I know nothing about it because I don't even know the word for it. An engine works. What if God was calling you to use that gift? Or you have a musical ability. What if God was calling you to serve in that capacity, whether that's here or somewhere else? God's given you an intellect, a mind, deep wisdom, life experiences, your very story, your testimony, the crud you've gone through in your life is to be stewarded. While I never believe God causes those things, what if part of your own redemption and renewal and healing was tied in the fact that you tell that story to another person? who's going through a similar situation. Whereas the psalmist says, let the redeemed say so. Tell others about all of this is a gift. The fact that you are alive and we have been through a pandemic together is a gift. What might God be calling you to so generously based off of who you are, how you're wired, the talents and abilities God has given you, or if you are one of those people who have great resources and means. What if God was calling you to use the blessings that God has given you for the benefit of somebody else? This is what the story of St. Nicholas gives us. And Paul uses this word, let me close with this, Paul uses this word, God loves a cheerful giver. And that word cheerful is hilarion in Greek, where we get the word hilarious. God loves a hilarious giver. Somebody who is so filled with joy that when they know they're using their gifts, they know they're using their talents, they know that they are serving the Lord, what fills them up is joy. I have never met a person yet, I've never met a person who has ever said to me, Jason, I gave too much. I served too much. Now we might have people who say they're tired and we need to give them a break. I've never heard somebody say I gave too much money away to that person. I've never heard somebody say 
that when, when they were using the gifts that God had given them for a greater purpose than themselves, that they regretted that. What I do hear is, especially for those who are entering into life eternal, is sometimes they look back and they say, I wish I would have. This is what it means to steward even life itself. God has given you talents and abilities and intellect and wisdom and insight and stories and resources so that you may sow and the harvest would be plentiful and the reward in which you receive is at the end of the day to know that I gave to God back that which God had given to me. Will you pray with me? God, you are a generous and gracious and compassionate and benevolent God. And you in our creation instilled in us talents and abilities and means. Forgive us when we hold on to those things because we don't think we have enough time, we don't think we have enough talent, whatever it might be, God, forgive us. Would you help loosen our hands? that we might live as a generous people, a benevolent people, always asking God today, how might you use me in the work of your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven? God, we thank you for the witness of St. Nicholas, who's known for his extreme generosity, a keen eye and awareness of the needs around him, We thank you for his faithfulness in responding to those needs. May we be as attentive to the needs around us. May we look and evaluate and assess all that you've given us. We might use them for your glory and your gain. In Jesus' name, and all God's people said, amen.